My name is A.M. Holmes, and my new book is called The Unfolding. In 2012, author A.M. Holmes published her novel, May We Be Forgiven. It was awarded the 2013 Women's Prize for Fiction, and this fan has been waiting for more work since. Her newest novel, The Unfolding, was well worth the wait. It follows a character known only as the big guy, as he mourns John McCain's loss of the 2008 presidential campaign, and it focuses on his relationship with his wife and daughter during this time in which he fears for the future of America. I recently spoke with A.M. Holmes about her complex characters, how she believes the 2008 presidential campaign directly led to the current state of political division, and so much more. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Okay, so could you give our listeners a brief description of the unfolding? Nope. No <laughs> I've seen you do this before. <laughs> the unfolding is a state of the nation novel, and it is also a braided narrative about a family and the secrets and the power of the secrets within the family. So in the largest sense, it is a story that takes place from the election evening of 2008 until the inauguration of Barack Obama, January 2009. And the stars of the show are a group of men who are very unhappy that their candidate, John McCain, has lost. And they want to figure out how to reclaim control of the Republican Party and get back their vision of what America should be. And at the same time, one of the main characters, the big guy's daughter, Megan, votes for the first time. And she begins her own process of kind of coming to consciousness and realizing that she may not see the world quite the same way that her family does and trying to define what does it mean to be a young woman growing up in this world, and who and what does she want to be, and how will she claim her own space? Okay, so this book is set over the course of 77 days, as you mentioned, beginning on election night, November 4th, 2008, and ending on Inauguration Day. So we meet, you know, one of your main characters, the big guy. We only know him as the big guy. We meet him in a hotel bar in Phoenix, Arizona, where he has traveled for a watch party for John McCain's campaign. Now, McCain had just conceded to Obama, and the big guy is drowning his sorrows with four different glasses of whiskey in front of him. And he is tapping, we are no longer safe in Morris Code at the end of the time when we meet him at the end of that chapter. So talk to me about the big guy, because he's not exactly, you know, it's not like one glance and you know what this man is all about. I think the big guy is complicated. And I think that's that's part of what drew me to him as a character, because I would say the big guy thinks he's a good guy and he may not be a good guy. And he thinks he's worked hard to get where he is. He's very successful. He has lots of money. He has lots of access and power. And I think he has, on the one hand, things that sound good. He really loves his country. He believes in his country. He believes he wants what's best for his country, but it may be that at that point of view that sees older white men in charge of all things is not entirely shared with everybody else. And I think that sense of a kind of fear that some people feel that happened when Barack Obama was elected feels to me like it tripped off a unleashing of a kind of both racism and sexism that is definitely under the surface in this country and is now increasingly not as under the surface. And so I wanted to sort of explore that. And I always do this thing of picking the least likely characters (laughs) to sort of explore certain ideas. And so I wanted to look at how the big guy can think well of himself, can in some ways be an incredibly interesting, generous person, and yet 
the ways too in which ideas that we talk about, like democracy, can mean different things to different people. And it can sort of sound good until a certain point where you're like, hey, I think I may be misunderstanding you because your version of that might be quite different from mine. You know, at the time we meet the big guy, we do not know how much money he has. He could be your neighbor, your friend, or even your father. He is a traditional Republican. And as you mentioned, he has both unlikable and some endearing characteristics. The New York Times says about your writing, beyond being good or bad, the characters in this impressive book are, above all things, unpredictable. You know, although later we understand that he considers himself above common people, initially his representation enforces the idea, reinforces the idea that things may not be black and white and, you know, but shades of gray. So as you mentioned, you're known for your characters and who you choose to tell the story. So I'm I'm wondering if you can talk to me about your approach to developing characters, especially when they're not always likable. Sure. Well, sort of working backwards. So the notion to me of likable is a very, very contemporary idea. So, you know, we're like, oh, I didn't like the character. And I think about books like Crime and Punishment. I think, I don't read that. Oh, I love this murderer. He's a heck of a guy. I think it's, it is a contemporary thing. And I think it's, at times can be problematic because I think likability and literature are not really related. So to me, I'm more interested in human behavior and what compels people to do certain things. People struggle with the big guy because they actually feel compassion towards him and they don't want to. To me, that's great because I think people are complicated and the big guy is not all bad and not all good, certainly. So that to me is an interesting thing. I think it also is a a situation too where too often in my mind, we read books in some ways looking for a reflection of ourselves. And I would say, this is a book where many people I know would read it and see the exact opposite of themselves and find that really difficult and hard to figure out, like, how do I read this? What do I do with this person? Um, But that's exactly why it's there. It is there for us to have that conversation and to think about how do we navigate it in a society where many of us have different points of view than others, but how do we kind of get through that and figure out what we do share in common? And also, how do we move forward peacefully is an important piece of it to me personally. You know, I was fascinated by the war games that were happening in the big guys, the basement of his Palm Springs home. You know, as I was reading, I actually stopped to jot down orange jello. So were these battles, maybe we should explain to the listeners, you know, what the battles were. But I'm wondering, you know, were they all in your head? Or did you have your own war room where you had to like plot out the activity that would appear on the page? I had so much fun. And it's weird to say fun (laughs) writing those war scenes. I was thinking about how, as a kid growing up, you know, when you go over to somebody's, a friend's house, and, and sometimes you go in the basement, and often it seemed to me like their their older brother or somebody in the family had set up on either the ping pong table or the pool table, their games of soldiers. And, and for some kids, those games got really complicated, and there would be water involved, and then, of course, there would be trouble from the parents <laughs> and so on, because they wrecked the table or did something. And in this case, I wanted this guy, again, in in the world that he lives in, it's a world of plenty. He's got a lot of everything. So he has a ping pong table and a pool table and all different kinds of tables. And on every table, he has a different war happening and a different scene in a different war. And then on the one that you're talking about, he's using orange jello as Agent Orange to defoliate, you know, a scene in Vietnam. And of course, it makes a sticky mess and so on. But I guess I was very interested in the ways in which 
people, men in particular, play at those games of war and that playing war is definitely a part of many people's lives. And then it becomes sort of somewhat more actualized and dimensional when he and a group of his friends go on a hunting weekend later in the book and begin playing war with a group of private military contractors in training. And that that piece of it is unfortunately, I would say, also real and true. There are people playing war in this country for real. You can go and play war. You can hire private military contractors. All of these things, as extreme as they may sound, are actually happening in various forms. And so that to me was also interesting and, and worrisome, obviously. You know, I want to talk about these men. They they had a secret pact. They They were plotting about substituting freedom for power in their rhetoric. They talk about starting a, a coup of sorts that will sweep across this country largely unnoticed until it's too late. They define misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and they they look to the Internet as a tool to help their cause. They talk about, you know, big data masquerading as free will. And I found it interesting that all of the men in this secret group, all older white men, none had sons. And it was like they could foresee the end of their lineage. Talk to me about, you know, these men and maybe the the impetus for, you know, why are they doing what they're doing? So the the big guy and the cohort that he taps, which are known as the forever men, are in a way extensions of a group that Eisenhower tapped, which were known as the Eisenhower 10. They were completely kept in secret for many, many years. But Eisenhower had a plan in case of nuclear disaster, basically, that 10 men from various parts of the country and and largely corporations and civilians would be in charge of different aspects of American life. So, you know, one guy would be in charge of agriculture and another guy would be in charge of communication. And he sent letters to them saying, in the event of, you know, disaster, you are in charge, as though that person would then show up at a farmer's house and say, I'm now in charge of agriculture. I, I need to distribute your crops. Not really sure how that would work, but I wanted to echo that structure. So I have among the men, a banker, a judge, um, a doctor, and so on. In terms of what they are really in some ways also representing is what I thought was happening when I started writing this book 10 years ago was I felt like on the one hand, the American political system in its largest sense had lost touch with the average American voter, which I think kind of happened. And I think Donald Trump tapped into that. But the other thing that was happening that started Uh, actually with Barack Obama, was the use of social media in in political campaigning. Um, And then the other other thing that was happening before that, but then became much, much more fluid and incredibly much more higher numbers is dark money. So money that came from various institutions and people that was funneled into different political action packs or think tanks and so on, that really funds campaigns of both information and disinformation and propaganda but we don't know where it's coming from. You don't see how it's arriving on your doorstep. And so I find that to be super complicated. And that's also really where we are right now. We are at the cusp of this strange moment that sort of began naming itself when Kelly and Conway started talking about alternative facts. And I thought, wow, that is an interesting idea. And so in part, we are in real time now seeing how all of this played out. And the idea that a group of wealthy men could begin to put into place a series of things that would evolve over time, where if it was, quote, working, it wouldn't even be traceable to them. They wouldn't know that that was the thing that they had created. 
And I think that is both fascinating and so incredibly dangerous. And it really is where we are now because we don't look back at a piece of, I don't even want to call it information, but a piece of narrative that lands on our doorsteps and say, how did this piece of narrative evolve? So when, you know, everything from when Pizzagate happened, right? So suddenly there was a piece of information, not information, narrative that was sent out that seemed to imply that Hillary Clinton was what running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Somebody shows up and shoots up the pizza parlor, but we don't really know where that stops and starts. And so I think that makes the moment we are in right now in 2022 particularly complicated and dangerous. And it serves a lot of people's purposes to create dissent, fear, distrust, because that chaos spins people to then have almost like tribal reactions and everyone pulls back into their own safe space, which often means I will hibernate with people who are like me. So I will go into my corner and be afraid of people who are different. And that's dangerous and complicated in a democratic society. So braided with this political story is a building's Ramon of sorts. So the big guy's daughter, Megan, is 18 years old and living at a boarding school in Virginia. As you mentioned, she votes for the first time. Uh, but then during these 77 days, you know, she finds herself in liminal identity and in, in the middle of a rite of passage. And I don't recall if she calls her father out on racism, but she certainly finds her voice and takes him to task on sexism. Talk to me a little bit about Megan, but also it, it seems like a lot of the information that was helping to inform her, it was coming from, you know, a couple of the guys inside this group. I mean, she was getting some information from both Eisner and Tony, her godfather. Somewhat. I mean, I think I think she's definitely getting some guidance from Eisner and Tony just into into also even how to look at her family in some sense. You know, I would say guidance and information aren't necessarily dangerous when coming from sort of a different point of view, because you can begin to say that is from a different point of view. I feel like a bigger part of her awakening is happening both in her school and in a class that she's taking in women's history. And the idea too, that, that history that involves women is somehow taught separately. It's like a different subject than just history in general and beginning to realize, you know, that despite a lot of progress, it's only been a hundred years that women have had the vote and it took them a hundred years to get the vote. And so what does that mean in terms of women's lives? And she looks back at her mother, Charlotte, and sees Charlotte as somebody who grew up, you know, being asked, not what do you want to be, but what kind of man do you want to marry? And she's thinking about how she wants to go forward into the world. And then there's a scene that involves her very precious horse and and a scene in the woods, which we won't give away too much. But that's also really meant to talk about how the things that we thought were there to protect us and keep us safe may not be so safe. And so what does that mean? Which I think is part of that is everybody's, meaning that we all go through it as a stage of life, kind of waking up to how complicated the world is and how we go from being somewhat naive and childlike in our understanding of society and its complexity to really realizing, oh, I have to pay attention. I have to be present. Society itself can be a complicated and sometimes dangerous place. So, you know, to that end, another side of the story is the big guy's wife, Charlotte, who spends most of the novel at Betty Ford. But through the course of the book, Charlotte has her own awakening, doesn't she? When I think about Charlotte, I really, she was a character for me that was really interesting and became more interesting as the story went along, because I see her as somebody who was living in the beginning of the book in a kind of stop time, which is also part of why she's she's literally drinking to not exist, right? And I, I look at people like 
Martha Mitchell, John Mitchell's wife, who was, you know, very present during the Nixon administration of Watergate. And there is a kind of political woman and wife who saw a lot and heard a lot and was not allowed to have a voice in that. So to me, Charlotte is a little bit Martha Mitchell, a little bit Betty Ford, and also in some ways across on a literary level in my mind between sort of Nancy Reagan and Joan Didion, kind of brittle, kind of fragile, but clocking everything. And so Charlotte's awakening is a really a multi-generational thing. And I feel for her because she's somebody who has not yet had a chance to have her own life. And even as she sort of tries to grapple with that and to find that space, she still doesn't really get it. She, you know, she takes up with someone she meets at Betty Ford, which is just another source of like protection or facilitation of her, of, you know, so she's not alone. So I, I secretly really love Charlotte and I, I kind of want to see where Charlotte might go from here. As I was reading, I thought I would see like echoes or we call them ghosts, you know, like when a word or an idea keeps appearing, I thought I would see these along the way, like like the Phoenix or the assassination of JFK or Disney. So were these echoes intentionally or am I just reading more into it? No, they're totally intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. That's the beauty and fun of writing. I'm glad you saw them because I'm not sure who notices what, but um, there's so much both information and history and fact and specificity in there that, again, people can read it however they can read it or want to read it, but there's definitely a lot in there. Buried treasure. So when I first started reading The Unfolding and I realized it it centered on the 2008 election, it took me a minute even to recall who ran against the Obama-Biden ticket. And I found it curious that we were looking back 14 years, but then as I read about the plan being set in motion and that the the rollout would begin in 15 years, you know, curious became interesting and then it became, oh man, and then it ended with the realization that this is actually a horror novel and the call is coming from inside the house. So many people ask, how did we get here? And you're providing an alternative history. So where do readers go from here? Do you have a hope that readers will take away from the book? Well, it may not even really be an alternate history because I think it does sort of, you know, illustrate how we got from 2008 to where we are now. I think the hard question is where are we going now? And I think at the end of the book, there's, you know, an idea that the big guy has that now that he's realized that he's got this great daughter and you don't have to have a son as your successor, your daughter could be your successor. And he thinks she's going to follow in his footsteps. And in a way, I I love that he thinks that, and it also tells me he remains somewhat oblivious and somewhat self-involved that he still sees things in that way. And then you have this young woman who is definitely about to go off into the world and make her way. And she talks about she doesn't want to be a bystander. She wants to be part of history. And so the real question is, what is going to happen? And, And is there a Megan out there? And who might that be? I also found it, like when I look at, you know, reality and where we are, fascinating in recent weeks to see Liz Cheney come to the fore and, you know, stand up for for truth and rule of law. And that's been amazing. And I didn't see that evolution. I thought, oh, so that's that's something that that a daughter of a of a, you know, staunch Republican and a very complicated man, who is of course the big guy is in awe of Dick Cheney, could do. So it's I, I there's so much in the book that despite that it took me 10 years to write, and I purposely said it in 2008, because I really feel that that election was pivotal in creating some of the circumstances and the division 
uh, into how we got to where we are now. I think it really provoked a crisis of fear, especially among older white men. Now, we've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? I don't think so. It's just such a treat to meet you and talk to you about anything. So I'm, I'm just very pleased. Oh, absolutely. The book is The Unfolding A.M. Holmes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was A.M. Holmes, author of the book, The Unfolding, which was published by Viking. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.